Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Join us as we share positive vibes from a Paralympian champion, roll our way to London 2012 with a remarkable person and special athlete, and hurdle adversity with a leading Paralympic advocate, athlete, and motivational speaker. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're sharing some truly inspirational people who have made their mark as Paralympians. Thanks, dear. Tony Volpin Test achieved his dream of running in the Olympics, becoming a four-time Paralympic gold medalist and five-time world champion sprinter, a seemingly incredible accomplishment because Tony was born without hands or feet. Tony is one of the most positive, upbeat, and inspirational people you'll ever meet, and he'll share his uplifting story. There was an instance where we were going to start doing baton drills, and without even turning around to see who was, who was talking to him before the drill, I said, Coach Anderson, do you really want me doing these? And he turned around like, who's, who's asking, who, what insubordinate's asking me? Becoming a world-class athlete takes enormous determination, courage, and faith. And Paralympian Anjali Forber-Pratt relies on all of those as she sets her sights on the 2012 Paralympic Games in London and will share her remarkable and inspiring story of this truly beautiful person. First of all, watching that Boston Marathon and first of all, realizing that this world of sport even existed for athletes for athletes with disabilities. So then I started bugging my parents and found a Saturday sports program for kids with disabilities. John Register was at the top of his sport as an all-American hurdler on the verge of qualifying for the U.S. Olympic team, only to suffer a devastating injury that would lead to the loss of his leg. He overcame that to compete as a Paralympian in two sports. John shares his life-altering and inspiring story of hurdling adversity. So that, that was my anchor. That could really hold me to know that this thing that happened to me has happened for a reason. You just need to be able to, to hold on and walk this path and see where God is taking you. This is World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Visit us and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Most athletes can only dream of running in the Olympics. Tony Volpin Test not only achieved this dream, but rose to the top of his sport. The accomplishment is all the more incredible because Tony was born without hands or feet. It was a four-time Paralympic gold medalist and five-time world champion sprinter. He has won numerous honors, including the U.S. Olympic Committee's Athlete of the Year, and he was recently nominated for the Olympic Hall of Fame. Tony is a media favorite and is taking some time today in between training to have a chat with us. Tony, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, indeed, a pleasure. Congratulations to you for the nomination for the Olympic Hall of Fame. Uh, still an incredible honor nonetheless. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, I, I truly feel blessed. Um, you know, the, the winner this year they announced this last Sunday is Jean Driscoll, and um, very deserving. I have nothing but respect for her. She's a true champion, um, and I look forward to, you know, being nominated down the road here again. I'm sure that will happen. Tony, with all of these awards, do you have enough space on your wall for all of them? <laughs> I just need a bigger wall. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... Um, you know, like with any award, I think for any athlete to even to be considered among, you know, the elite and, and to know really what the Hall of Fame stands for, it's, it's not just for um, the accomplishments on the field of play, but 
uh, you know, for really truly trying to leave a legacy. And that's that's really why I feel so honored is because mm. to have your organizing committee recognize that, um, that really is a, a, just a tremendous honor. Indeed. Uh, Tony, your story is so inspiring. I mean, it's incredibly inspiring. Take us through your your evolution from the beginning to, to now. I think it's important to... to to state that when I was growing up, I had uh, one, I have five older siblings, but one of them, my brother Art, was really um, the brother I grew up with because he was still in that, you know, obviously being a year older than me. Uh, the others were much older, so most of them were kind of out and on their own. But my parents, uh, they, they didn't, they didn't treat me differently than they had the other five. They had so much practice, I think, that by the time they got to me, they just thought, although Tony might have some challenges, we have to, treat, to, to teach him that he'll have to adapt to the world around him rather than expecting the world to adapt to him. And I really credit them for, you know, really giving me that, um, that, that early insight into always having to fight for what I really wanted. So all through my, my early years, uh, if there was ever anything I really was passionate about, uh, you know, I would talk to my parents, and if, as long as I was doing it for, you know, the, the ethical reasons and, and, and all the right reasons, they were 100% supportive. And then as I transitioned into high school, I went from a very, very small Catholic grade school to this enormous public high school. And mm-hmm. I, even though I was, you know, I was confident, I was self-assured, but I was still kind of shy, and I was culture shocked. So when I got into high school, for me, track and field was really a way to get involved with the school, meet people, and kind of come out of my shell. And, you know, I, I came in last every race my freshman year, I'm sorry, my sophomore year when I tried out. Um, but I, it didn't matter to me because I was having so much fun just being involved with the team and getting to meet people. Then as I was introduced to the technology that allowed me to train harder, things kind of started to change and, and it just kind of went from there. Did you run into a lot of barriers trying to participate in this sport in high school? You know, I didn't. And, and to be honest, when I wanted to try out for the track team, even though I knew I didn't need permission from the coach, I wanted to talk to the coach prior mm-hmm. to actually trying out. And I already knew that nobody got cut, and that wasn't really the issue for me. What I wanted to know was what, what, would he treat me the same as he did the other athletes, because that was important for me. And I had a conversation with him in, the, in, in an open gym after school one day um, before tryouts, and I approached Mr. Anderson and I said, uh, Coach Anderson, I, I wanted to ask if, if it's okay with you if I tried out for track. And, of course, he said, well, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Um, and I said, well, I just want to make sure that you treat me the same as you do all the other kids. And he said, Tony, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I, I won't lie, there was a, there was a period, uh, I think, where, you know, he had to gauge on the track. He had to gauge what, you know, how far do I push Tony, um, you know, there was, a, there was an instance where we were going to start doing baton drills and without even turning around to see who was, who was talking to him before the drill, I said, Coach Anderson, do you really want me doing these? And he turned around like, who's, ta- who's asking, who, what insubordinate's asking me to do these <laughs> drills? And then when he saw me, he, he paused for, I, I guess, long enough that I just kind of said, okay, I'll go do them you know, before he had a chance to really react. <laughs> and, and so I just started doing the drills. And by my senior year, I was leading off the, the four by one relay. Wow. Mm. Bless that. What a blessing that, you know, that support. I mean, you, you grew up in a, in a really supportive environment, both at home and in school. And, and that's a true blessing. A lot of uh, children don't have that, uh, you know, those advantages. I agree. Tell us about what your training regimen is like each and every day. Of late, 
I've decided that I I am going to put on a new shiny pair of legs um, that are in the making as we speak, uh, just to see what's left in in my legs. And I've been training uh, for gosh almost a year now uh, with the personal trainer here in Chandler uh, at Spartan Training. So as you can imagine from the name of the studio, it is a grueling regimen, <laughs> and the, the, the challenges that Robert had with me at Spartan were, you know, he had never trained anyone without hands or feet. I, I would imagine most trainers haven't. Mm-hmm. And he, he actually, you know, he's, he's, um, he's older as far as a personal trainer. You know, most people think of a personal trainer as, you know, a guy right out of, right out of college or, um, you know, at, at top of his fitness form. And, and Robert and his wife, Vicki, they're a little bit older, you know, in their, in their 50s. But they have so much experience and so much knowledge. Um, you know, he had me for the first time about three weeks ago doing pull-ups. I'd never done pull-ups in my life. You know, I'd, wow. I'd, I'd been restricted to doing mostly pressing motions, and, and he concocted a way for me to be able to actually do my own pull-ups. And I can't tell you the pain I have experienced <laughs> in this last three weeks as he started to do things with my back that I've never done and, and different range, ranges of motion that I've never really um, been accustomed to. Uh, my coach from years ago, Brian Hoddle, was here uh, almost a month ago for a, a meet at Arizona State University. And he looked at me from across the table after the meet as we were having lunch, and he said, Tony, you look like you're in better shape now than you were when, when I was training you. <laughs> and I told him, I mean, I'm down to 6% body fat. I've never been that low. I feel better. I, uh, I'm strong stronger than I was before. And so I think if I had had maybe an extra three months um, where I kind of had some of these breakthroughs and, and, and had these physiological feelings of feeling that I was stronger, I probably would have given it a run to go to, to London. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I can't make a run for Rio or even world championships in the years to come. Are you preparing for a competition outside of, of London right now? Uh, you know, I'm not. So I, well, I, yes and no. Here's kind of a a cryptic answer to that question. I I think that for everyone, um, you you know, I'm training for life. Mm. I'm training for health. And if if on my journey in in that training, I have opportunities again to compete and represent our country, I will absolutely take those opportunities because for me, there's no greater honor than representing my country, um, you know, especially in, in that type of a venue. So I I guess that's kind of my way of, of answering. I, I'm not training for a specific event other than I want to be healthy, I want to be fit, um, I want to live a long life, I want to be around for the kids. Tony, I know you've traveled around the world, you know, competing in a number of, of events. Is there, and, and you've won a ton of medals, is there one medal that you're most proud of and I mean one maybe that uh, was the most challenging for you and that you were able to uh, actually experience success with wow uh, I've never been asked that question which which one meant the most they all were if, if I just take it to the to the Paralympic level here um, obviously they were all very very special to me obviously you know the first medal I won in 100 meters in Barcelona um, was my first, and, and that, I would have to say, is, is probably the most special because I really came in with, with no expectations. You know, nobody, nobody um, knew what I was going to do. Nobody expected what happened to happen. Um, obviously, I dreamt of it, and I wanted it really hmm. badly, but uh, there wasn't that, that 
pressure. Um, and in Atlanta in 96, not that those medals weren't as sweet, but I was expected to, to win those. I, I, you know, I, I was the defending champion. I was the defending gold medalist. Um, there's, to me, it, it felt a little bit more like a business transaction than it did, you know, an Olympic dream. Hmm. Not, not to take away from the experience. It was still obviously very, very, very special for me. But Barcelona was the first, and I, I, I'd have to say that 100-meter gold medal was, was definitely the, the sweetest for me. Mm-hmm. Now, Tony, as you travel around the world participating in these competitions, do you get a chance to enjoy the locales where the events are held and the, the people and the fans who are there? You know, uh, that's uh, it's a, a great question because I've I've often spoke about that. I I want to go back to a lot of the locations that I've traveled to because I hadn't gotten the chance or did not get the chance in many cases to really enjoy the cultures. Uh, I did in Barcelona uh, after competition. I did have a few extra days, and my parents ended up staying and and, and they actually traveled uh, further into Europe after the games were over, and I came back home, but. We did have a chance to kind of get out and see the city of Barcelona and, and spend time together as a family. But I could go back easily and spend a, another couple weeks. Um, there's many places around the world I'd love to go back and visit. My wife, uh, my current wife now, hasn't traveled outside of the United States other than a cruise we went on a few years ago. Uh, so I'd love to be able to explore with her and kind of show her the world. Mm. Well, Barcelona, that. 92 Olympiad in Barcelona, that was probably visually perhaps one of the most beautiful settings ever held for an Olympiad. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine just just your desire to want to get back there. In terms of your life's experiences, uh, what has had the most impact in terms of changing your life and taught you the most important lessons that carry on today? If there was one really big defining moment um it happened pretty recently and that that was the moment where and i talk about this in my book um my wife and i were shopping at costco of all places and we were just exiting the warehouse and i hear this this woman from behind in this long line saying excuse me sir excuse me excuse me as she's pushing and 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 clawing her way through the line (laughs) and she finally gets up to the front where we're just walking out and she taps me on the shoulder and she says sir I really would like to talk to you about my son. And as we turn around, there's her little boy, who we actually had seen earlier in the warehouse, but to us it looked like he had on, you know, like soccer shin guards. We, we, we didn't realize from a distance that they were actually prosthetics. Mm-hmm. And, and from another amputee to say that, I think is, you know, it, um, I, I just hadn't even thought about it when I saw him. I thought, oh, there's a little boy just playing soccer. And as we sat there and ta- or stood there and talked, she started telling us about how, you know, he had always had these kind of rudimentary prosthetics, and, and uh, he really just wanted to be to be a quote-unquote normal kid and get out and, and play with his friends and ride the bikes and jump on the trampoline and do all these, these kid things. And he saw my leg while we were walking through Costco, and, you know, I have this, this sh- 
you know, bright, shiny carbon graphite leg that I wear on my right leg. So my right leg's about three inches shorter than my left, so it, it just kind of keeps my hips level. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, she wanted to know, where'd you get your leg? I want to get something like that for my son. And so we talked and exchanged information, and I gave her the name of my prosthetist here in Phoenix at Artificial and Specialists. And, and they ex- ended up connecting, and, and this little boy got what he needed. But when my wife and I got out to the car to put our things away, we both looked at each other and we thought to ourselves, you know, this was said to each other, this is this is one of those defining moments where we felt that there was now a, a specific direction that I was being told by the universe that I needed to work toward. And that was to, you know, establish a nonprofit where we can help children or uh, even adults or, you know, uh, injured vets coming back. And I know there's all kinds of funds out there available for, for these types of organizations, but that doesn't change the fact that I want to be that person that's in the right place at the right time for somebody else. Mm-hmm. I heard a quote recently, essentially said, you know, you don't have to go around the world to, to change or to make an impact. You can go as closely as across the street from you to make a difference in somebody else's lives. And I think that's what what you described, that kind of the spirit of that that quote. You were just there and you met somebody at a at a grocery store and you had a tremendous impact on this this child's life. We're certainly gonna have you on again, Tony, to talk about your book. I know you you referenced it. I'm uh I know it's still in the uh printing process. Um, but uh, we certainly want to have you back on to talk about your book, which is, I believe the title is The World's Fastest Man. It's Fastest Man in the World, dot, dot, the Tony Volpin Test Story. Okay. Almost got it. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> um, but, and, and certainly your, your nonprofit, I didn't realize that you had a nonprofit or were in the process of developing one. And so uh, we certainly want to support you with, you know, another uh, interview there to discuss that. Tony, thank you so much for, for joining us today on, on World Footprints. And we will have a link to your website, um, which provides a, uh, a calendar of events and, and uh, hopefully upcoming races where we can see you. Yes, absolutely. I will keep it up to date, and I appreciate the opportunity today to talk to you and your listeners. Oh, it's, it's been our pleasure, and uh, we look forward to having you on our show again. Uh, Tony Volpentest, um, athlete extraordinaire and um, multi-medal winner uh, who needs a bigger wall for his home. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Coming up, the inspiring story of Paralympian Angelie Forber-Pratt. First of all, watching that Boston Marathon and first of all, realizing that this world of sport even existed for athletes, for athletes with disabilities. So then I started bugging my parents and found a Saturday sports program for kids with disabilities. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Marcia Alexion and I'm talking to you from Vancouver right now. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been living in Vancouver for about 20 years, and I love World Footprints Radio. Are you planning a vacation, a business trip, or a honeymoon abroad? Want to enhance your trip and make a meaningful contribution to the places you visit? Packforapurpose.org can show you how. Before you travel... Visit packforapurpose.org. It's easy to make a big impact. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. 
and I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Becoming a world-class athlete takes enormous determination, courage, and faith. Anjali Forber-Pratt has all of those characteristics and more. She's a record-breaking Paralympic athlete who has competed on the international stage for several years. She's headed to London for the 2012 Games, but is taking time out of her busy training schedule to join us today. Anjali, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here today. I failed to mention that you are a two-time bronze medalist from the 2008 Paralympic Games in Beijing. And uh, this has to be an exciting time to be preparing again for an, another Olympiad. It absolutely is. It, it, you know, it, as strange as it sounds, Beijing just seems like yesterday. But mm. I can't believe London's here, uh, and I'm so excited to hopefully have the opportunity to once again represent Team USA. We've had a chance to read your bio, and it really is an inspiring story of uh, your life starting in India and then coming to the United States. Give people some of the background of uh, your life journey and how you have found yourself in truly a remarkable position today. Sure. Well, I was born in India and uh, spent two months in an orphanage and then was adopted by my parents just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. In those days with international adoption, babies were just put on a plane with a caregiver for the long flight, so I actually quite literally met my parents in the airport. Um, and really, my my passion for sport and, and just kind of who I am today, it all started with a dream. Uh, to be honest, I thought that my disability, which is transverse myelitis, um, was just a phase that I was going to outgrow. I got sick two months after arriving in the United States, and... I uh, was left paralyzed from the waist down. So using a wheelchair to, to get around is pretty much all, all that I've, I've ever known. But for me, you know, not knowing any adults with disabilities, I, I held this, you know, childhood assumption that to become an adult, to get a job, to have a family, that I first had to outgrow this phase. Uh, but my, luckily, my parents understood the power of seeing is believing. Hmm. And at a young age, I remember watching the Boston Marathon and seeing people in racing wheelchairs go whizzing by at 25 miles per hour. And I was completely blown away. I had never seen anything like it. And I knew right in that moment that was something that I had to try. And, you know, that was really the, the, the start of my dream um, to the, that kind of led me down this path to where I am today. I mean, you're, you know, you're very, very blessed, um, you know, to have the parents that you, you did. And, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you, it, it, it's moot because you came over here so young, but I was mm-hmm. curious about, you know, the cultural uh, transition for you. You really didn't experience that, did you? I, I didn't experience it then. But what I will say, being, being in, entering my adult life and in, as I entered graduate school, and I think that there's kind of this natural sort of path that, that young adults go through in, in terms of their own identity development and, and things like that. And for me, it was, it was entering graduate school when I started really questioning my Indian heritage. And I, and I made the decision to go back in 2006 to India, um, to Calcutta, uh, for the first time. And that was really when I started to notice sort of those, those cultural differences. And 
as an adoptee, I was raised with two white parents. My older brother uh, is Indian and actually currently lives in India. And then my younger brother and sister are, are white. And for me, it was just this interesting experience, though, where, you know, I didn't feel like I quite fit in here in America, but I didn't quite fit in in, in India either because I was raised, you know, Western and raised with very American values. And even though I look Indian, I'm in a very Western and modern wheelchair, you know, something that you wouldn't see in India. And so it was just a, a very, um, you know, a disorienting dilemma, really, for, for myself trying to figure out, okay, so I don't fit in here and I don't fit in there. So how can I embrace this this piece of India um, as part of who I am and as part of my identity? So it's it's been a journey for sure. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine the journey continues because you travel around the world as well. And those you know you know Ian and I can attest when you when you travel when you visit other cultures when you immerse yourself in other cultures you do come back a different person. It does change you, and so. Do you feel like you have that element too that you're grappling with as you know as a global citizen and then trying to find your um, your ethnic identity and your your nationalization uh, identity are you grappling with that too? Absolutely, you know I think every every trip that I go on. I mean I, I've been fortunate to have, have traveled to at least a dozen different countries, if not more. Um, and every single trip that I go on, I, I do find that, you know, you, you take something back with you from, from those experiences and you transform in some way if, if you allow yourself to. I mean, I, I think about, you know, some of the work that I've done in, in more developing nations such as Ghana and, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about working in those rural areas is that literally every second that you're there, you're changing lives and, and changing the world. And, you know, it's just, it's an incredible experience to be a part of and, and something that I absolutely love. Talk a bit about what the experience was like for you in Ghana, and I understand, too, that you have also gone to one of our favorite places as well, Bermuda, which yes, you know has yes. some challenges for uh, folks who are, who are facing uh, disabilities in terms of wheelchairs and accessibilities. Talk about some of those experiences uh, and how they've shaped you. The work that I've done both in Ghana and Bermuda has been surrounding sport, mostly. And, and I found that sport is a way to kind of transcend differences. And sport can serve as a catalyst for social change in some of these nations. Um, for many individuals with disabilities, providing this gift of sport is the first time that individuals with disabilities are taken seriously by their own family or even by their community. Uh, the Paralympic movement, and for listeners who might not know, the Paralympics is the second largest sporting event in the entire world, and it's elite-level competition for athletes with disabilities. And this movement is growing bigger than ever, and just to get Paralympians out there in some of these countries sharing stories alongside Olympians, it sends a very powerful message, especially in these, these nations. Um, more specifically, my work in Bermuda was to develop Paralympic sports. And being an island nation, the biggest resource that they were lacking was knowledge. Uh, it was interesting because they have the infrastructure, the talent, the desire, and the financial resources to make it happen. But in many ways, they were just they were just lacking this this what to me was a very simple, um, you know, missing piece, which was just knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there was one young woman that I met uh, there, Jessica Lewis, and she and her family. Um, had to pay for and install an elevator in her school just so she could get to class. 
but she's learned the power of sport to change people's perception of disability. So she's now an up-and-coming wheelchair racer and got to represent her country for the first time ever at the Parapan American Games uh, in Guadalajara. And she's on her way to London, hopefully, uh, to represent her own country. And so she's really embraced the power of sport to, to further the disability rights movement right there within Bermuda. And I just think that's it's so incredible to be able to sort of, you know, help to light that fire within her and, and to guide her as, as she, you know, can go forth and, and makes a difference in the world in, in her own way. You know, you, you just said something that really um, struck me that uh, Jessica and her family had to pay for an elevator at school, at her school, so that she mm-hmm. could get to class. That would never happen in the U.S. because we, we do have federal laws. And so I'm wondering, you know, with the work that you're doing and, um, and, and others to raise awareness um, about, you know, you know, we have the ADA laws here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do mm-hmm. you see other countries adopting similar uh, measures, similar regulations to, to make their countries and even basic rights such as education accessible? Part of my strong connection to Jessica is that I actually also had to fight to get an education here in the United States. Mm. Um, I was, I, I, no, my parents didn't have to pay to get an elevator installed because, yes, we did have the protections of the Americans with Disabilities. But I actually, at age 14, hired my own lawyer and took on my entire school district um, in a federal case against against my district based on the basis of accessibility. And it was one of it's one of those stories, though, where even in America, we yes, we have these laws, but in certain areas of of this of our own country. Uh, you know, it's not being enforced, and, and the fact that, you know, I, yes, the ADA was, was, was on the books, but I was being denied access to take English class. I wasn't allowed to participate in physical education class from the fifth grade on. I couldn't get to the chemistry lab. I mean, there's, there's all these different experiences and, and sort of obstacles that, that I faced when trying to get my own education. And, but yes, we kind of had, had this, this sort of um, structure in place and, and sort of ways to, to try to alleviate that and, tr- and to say, hey, this isn't right. Whereas in some of these developing nations, they don't have, you know, policies on, on, in place yet. And so, but it's interesting when I go to Ghana and when I go to Bermuda, when I share that story with some of those for them, to, it gives it gives other individuals hope that hey, I'm not the only one who has to fight for this, and you know, and I'm able to, to share my experiences and 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 to hopefully motivate them to see that you know it, it is a, a fight worth fighting. Now, Anjali, you mentioned being inspired by watching the Boston Marathon. How did you first get involved in competitive athletics? Well, so for me, it was, uh, first of all, watching that Boston Marathon and, first of all, realizing that this world of sport even existed for athletes for athletes with disabilities. So then I started bugging my parents and found a Saturday sports program for kids with disabilities that was about an hour away. And I got to try every sport under the sun. And personally, I fell in love with the sports of speed, so downhill skiing and wheelchair racing. Uh, were my loves, and, you know, from there, I got the opportunity to, to try competition, and, and you better believe it, I got that competition bug, and um, in 1993, when I was about nine years old, I got to go to my first junior national competition, and that's when I started realizing, you know, there, there's a bigger sport, 
uh, competitive world out there that, hey, maybe I want to be a part of this. And then we fast forward to 2008 in Beijing and the manifestation of that dream as you medaled twice, uh, two bronze medals there. What was it like to be on that podium then representing the United States in an Olympiad? Oh, my goodness. I know my answer sounds cliche, but it truly has been a dream come true. You know, from the time that I was that that young kid, five, six years old, drawing pictures and fantasizing what it would be like to wear those letters across my chest and to represent our country, and it took a lot of hard work and determination, for sure, to get there. But in 2008, you know, when I rolled into that stadium at the Bird's Nest and there was 91,000 screaming fans in the audience, Mm. it was just breathtaking. I mean, even rehashing the story, I mean, just... It's just an incredible, incredible experience. Now, you've talked a little bit about, you know, skiing as well, and so I'm curious, have you uh, have you competed in both the Winter and Summer uh, Olympics, and were you in Vancouver by any chance? Um, I have not competed in the Winter Paralympics. I, I kind of competed mostly at the national level when I, was, when I was a competitive ski racer, but currently living in the flatlands of Illinois, it's a little bit difficult to find a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one would think. But you were recently in uh, Breckenridge. <laughs> what were you doing there? Um, in Breckenridge, Colorado, I was there for the Hartford Ski Spectacular, which is an incredible week-long event uh, that's put on through Disabled Sports USA, an organization that, that I'm proud to be a part of. And uh, the whole week, it's about getting individuals out there skiing, either for their very first time, honing their racing skills, um, and for instructors and, and um, volunteers to learn about all the different adaptive equipment. I had the opportunity to mentor a young kid who uh, just recently over the summer was injured in the um, in a stage collapse, actually, at the Sugarland concert, Brad Humphreys. He uh, was left paralyzed and was out there for his very first time getting exposed to some winter sports. We talk, you know, we talked a little bit about your your travels, and we touched on Ghana and Bermuda. Where are some of the other mm-hmm. countries that uh, you visited, and how have those places been for you? And actually, I want to circle back to to China um, because I live mm-hmm. there, and so I'm curious mm-hmm. about your perception of uh, of Beijing and whether you went outside of Beijing to visit other areas. I've traveled to, to several different areas um, and specific to China, it actually reminds me of one of the most successful experiences that, that I've had traveling with a disability was actually in Beijing. Um, after the games had ended, a few of my friends, uh, we wanted to go downtown to see a little bit more of Beijing. And so we hailed a taxi and at first we were very resistant and said, no, 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 only one person in a wheelchair can get in. And there was a group of about five of us. But we knew how to pack the cab and to make it work. I mean, we were used to doing that in our everyday lives. But the neat thing was that this man was, was willing to learn. And so once we showed him how we were going to disassemble our wheelchairs and how we were going to pack it kind of like a game of Tetris, something truly magical happened. He got on the radio and told all of the cab drivers that it wasn't a problem at all. And uh, and he somehow or other rehashed how, you know, how to disassemble the chairs. And so when it was time for us to return to to go back to the athlete village um, and when other friends wanted to hail a cab to go on an adventure or whatever, 
it was a non-issue from that point forward. So it was kind of just a really cool experience of, about a the power of, of listening and being willing to learn. That's fantastic, I mean, particularly in, in, you know, in, in Beijing, um, just, mm-hmm. you know, the receptiveness of the, uh, the drivers. That's a fantastic experience and probably very transformative for them as well. We've talked a lot about travels on this show, accessible travels. What are some of the other issues you've experienced traveling as an accessible traveler? And what are some of the things you want to see changed? Yeah, you know, I think Unfortunately, it is those negative experiences that we're, we're kind of all more apt to remember. I mean, I remember instances of having my boarding pass taken away when I was trying to board a plane for India because the ticket agent made the assumption that I was medically unstable to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was another experience, actually, unfortunately, recently when I was vacationing in Hawaii, and I was denied access to board a boat to go on a dinner cruise with friends because they said, because you were handicapped. Um, and and the whole ex- those experiences are certainly disheartening and frustrating. Um, and when you when you go to developing nations, you know people don't expect to see a tourist or a person in, the, in a wheelchair just out and about in their society. And it just just by going to these places, it turns heads. And so I think really the biggest barrier that I face is just that underlying assumption that I can't do it and that I shouldn't be there. People are afraid of differences instead of, like the, the taxi driver in, in China, instead of embracing the moment, asking questions, and, and being open to learn. Um, I, that's what I think is the biggest barrier that I face. Now, Anjali, we're on the uh, verge of these 2012 games in London, and it's been four years since Beijing. How have you maintained your training regimen, your drive? in between the two Olympiads, and give us a sense of what your training is like as you head into the 2012 Games in London. For me, my biggest motivation comes from my own motto, which is dream, drive, do. And, you know, I I think back to to just my childhood dream and and trying to make that a reality. And, and yes, the drive comes from the the obstacles that are going to come up along the way. But then it's just a matter of getting out there and, and doing it. So for me, that entails training six days a week, um, anywhere from an hour to two hours uh, session, and balancing that with the you know the other um, obligations that I have of finishing up uh, school and, and work and, and all of that. But for me, that that's really what what it comes down to is just remembering you know dream, drive, do. We're we're all able to to make your dreams a reality if if, if you really dedicate a lot of hard work to to making it happen. Now, one of those obligations is you're on a Ph.D. program at the University of Illinois. Talk to us about that and how you're balancing all of this. Yes, I'm actually getting quite close to finishing a Ph.D. in the Department of Education, Policy, Organization, and Leadership. Um, And I'm actually scheduled to finish up in March, so... Um, it, it, the end is in sight with that, and I'm quite excited. Uh, personally, my, with that, my research interest centers around individuals who are not given a chance, those who are left on the sidelines in life for whatever the reason. And, yes, it, it certainly does take up uh, quite a bit of my time, but I, I found there's a unique intersection between my role as an athlete and as an, as an ambassador for the sport movement and my research interests. And, and I've been fortunate to have an incredible set of advisors and mentors who have really pushed me to kind of bring all of those interests together, um, which is how I am able to balance it all. 
what is next for for you? I mean, you're going to graduate, you defend your PhD this March. You have the Olympics. Uh, are we looking at 2016 Olympics? I mean, how long do you uh, anticipate competing, and and what's your plans, your life plans after you uh, receive your your degree? Uh, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> well, as you mentioned, in the immediate future, you know, graduation and hopefully earning a spot on Team USA for 2012 is. Those are kind of immediately next on the horizon. And beyond that, I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, What I do know is that I'm passionate about helping others um, who are left on the sidelines for whatever reason, not just in the context of sports, but also in life or in education. Uh, I see myself continuing to spread my story and message to help others. And I I don't know. I mean, whether I continue on through Rio, um, it has yet to be determined. I told myself I will reevaluate after London and and you know to, to some degree just kind of go and win takes me. You you mentioned <laughs> that uh, you're in the process of qualifying for 2012. What what goes on in um, in in qualifying for the games? And I mean, what's what's the process there? Yeah, so for the 2012 Paralympic Games, we have trials, which are held the last weekend in June in Indianapolis. And the way it works is uh, basically, you first of all, you have to have hit qualification times in order to, to be invited to participate in trials, which I have done so far. And at trials, um, you have to finish in the top three in, in the events that I would like to run in London in order to hopefully secure an individual spot um, on the team. So so in addition to meeting a time goal, you also have to place top three um, at the trials in order to contest your event. And, of course, we will have links to uh, every place uh, people can find you on your guest profile page on our website and also this show. And I tell you, if uh, anyone sees your photograph on your guest profile page, you are so buff. Michelle Obama and her beautiful <laughs> arms don't light a candle to you. So we expect to see you on the, on the track. Thank you very much, and I hope that everyone will continue to follow me on my journey. And it's just Anjali, A-N-J-A-L-I-S-P, and that's how you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and my own website. Thank you very much. After the break, Paralympian John Register shares his life altering an inspiring story of hurdling adversity. So that, that was my anchor. That could really hold me to know that this thing that happened to me has happened for a reason. You just need to be able to, to hold on and walk this path and see where God is taking you. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterward. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. 
Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Imagine being on the path of qualifying for the 1996 U.S. Olympic track and field team as a hurdler after being a three-time All-American at the University of Arkansas to suffering a devastating injury resulting in the loss of your leg. Through faith and family, John Register overcame that devastating loss, first to compete as a Paralympic swimmer in the 1996 Atlanta Games, and then went on to win a silver medal as a long jumper in the 2000 Paralympic Games in Sydney, Australia. John's story of hurdling adversity is one he shares with audiences all over as a motivational speaker, and he joins us today to share his inspiring story. John, welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm so honored to be on your show today. Now, you are the Associate Director of the U.S. Olympic Committee in the Paralympic Division, but before we talk about the committee and the upcoming Games in London, take us back to the start of your incredible journey as an athlete. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, you know, it's, it's amazing how life will, will, will sometimes change and challenge us in ways that we never thought we would be challenged before. Uh, when I lost my leg, I was really on top of the world. I was moving forward. I was, I was just going to be on this uh, the Olympic team. I had a great shot at it. You know, I was ranked about number nine, eight or nine in the country, uh, the top 40 in the world, and then devastation happens. And so what do you do during that time? What I had to do was, was really rediscover who I was and the things that I thought I'd lost. I really hadn't lost, but I, I needed to walk through this path. And so through faith, through family, through friendships, it equaled my liberation, my freedom to get me back on, on track after, after losing the limb. But it was really sport that, that allowed me to come back and get to a place to where I once thought I, I, I had lost. And, and that really launched me into so many other areas in my life because it gave me the confidence again. It gave me the, the, the self-desire, the drive to move forward and press towards a goal. So that's, I think, is, is really the, the crust of, of how I, I moved through that uh, difficult situation. Now, John, you started off as, as, as a kid growing up in the Chicago area doing all of the, the sports, baseball, football, swimming, all of that, and then you found your way really at, at the high level as an NCAA collegian, and then all of a sudden you have this injury. How did you make that transition from really being an able-bodied athlete at the top of his game to then becoming a Paralympian in a different venue as, as a differently abled person? How did that happen for you? Well, I, I, I had a, a therapist who, who taught me or showed me that, uh, you know, just, just start swimming for physical therapy, and I began doing that. And I think that the, the, the overall arching thing was people that were around me, I, I, I tend to surround myself with people who are just gonna, are going to be positive and not, and not drag me down, which means I can help other people as, as well. And so I had a lot of people in my life that were not going to allow me to fail. And somebody told me about the Paralympic Games. Uh, this was a parallel track. I'd never heard of it before for athletes with physical disabilities and visual impairments uh, for the most part. And they were competing on the world stage. But I really didn't understand this world. And, and quite honestly, you know, I, I thought that, you know, me as this, this athlete, when, I'm, when I was sitting in a gate area waiting for a flight to board for the, uh, the Paralympic swim team was going down and the track and field team and the basketball team were going down to compete in a test event in Atlanta, Georgia, I was sitting in the gate waiting area and I was looking around me. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not a part of these athletes. And I began to put myself above, you know, who they were uh, as individuals, as people. And it was really a, a, a thing I, I never had 
quite experienced before of this this um, this elevation of, of, of self and and in that moment I began to, to think you know you know what must what goes up must come down and and so as, as my thoughts were going up that the gate agent she said you know the flight was about to board from Dulles to Atlanta for these test events and my change of thought first came when she said that she said well everybody that needs a little bit more time and assistance please get up and board the aircraft at this time so 70 of my teammates got up and began to walk down the jet bridge and I said oh that's pretty cool this is a perk and so I began to as I began to shift and focus my attention on uh, being a person with a quote-unquote disability you know I took my seat I went down to the 14th row and I realized uh, and I saw my teammate coming on board he's a, a, a basketball player and he's a he was a bilateral amputee he is a bilateral amputee and being bilateral you know have symmetrical being lost below the limbs uh, on the legs you that the person can be either as tall or as short as they want to be depending upon the legs they pick out in the morning so when he got on the plane he was actually six eight and he's ducking underneath the exit sign he stops at the seventh row and he takes his artificial legs off and becomes now he's like four three and his teammates as he's in the seat his teammates take his legs and place them in the overhead bin and i'm just in awe of what's going on here because you know as he as his legs are off i'm like trying to understand all this stuff and i said well i i, I think i get it he's got more leg room uh, so that the the um uh, flight attendant comes in and asks him is, is he okay and he says yes i'm fine you know, you know go ahead and do what you need to do i'm good here and so as she goes off, his teammates then quickly take him, him now being four, three, and take him, place him in the overhead compartment of the, of, the, of the overhead bin and close the bin door. And so the next person that comes on the plane that stops at that seat, who looks very important on the cell phone, has, a, has his rucksack and backpack on, he uh, doesn't have a, a, a place to place his rucksack underneath the, the, the uh, seat in front of him, so he must open the overhead bin. And I'm on the edge of my seat about to see what's going to happen. Mm. And so as... Uh, as, as all my other teammates, my 69 other teammates, are just kind of sitting there on the, on the plane like little church mice, like they've done this a thousand times before. And so here's my elevated self looking at this whole thing going on with this with my new teammates here. And when the man opens the overhead door, the door swings open, the man pops out, and, the, and that guy goes flying all the way back <laughs> to the fourth row where I'm at. <laughs> And I thought, you know, wow, that, that's just incredible. And I told, you know, dude, your, your seat's up there with that guy up there. And so as he moves back up, you know, the guy says, uh, this bin is taken. And, and I'm just laughing hysterically mm. about what's, what has just taken place. And so who am I? Shame on me for thinking myself anything different. Because these, these individuals who I was now with, who are now part of this phenomenal community, um, just want to act in the same way and play the same type of practical jokes as we did when I was at the University of Arkansas, as I twice went to the Olympic trials, as I was, you know, in the, in the United States Army, you know, and some of the pranks we played in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, just living life and having fun. And that began to really move me and change my attitude about everybody. You know, I had these inhibitions about myself, and it helped grow me. I was the one really with the disability because I could not accept these individuals for who they were at that time. I love this community. You know, I live with a mantra that my dad um, quotes constantly, where there's a will, there's a way. And so, you know, I've always been committed to finding the the way. The will's always been there. But, but sometimes, you know, you fall into to a, a, a pit. Was it your support group? Was it, you know, these, these new experiences? Do you attribute those things to kind of bringing you out of what could have been, you know, a dark, uh, under a dark cloud. That's a great mantra that that your your, your dad has. I think when, be, be, 
because our, of our character is, is developed through a series of, of, of things that happen to us in our life and the things that we see and experience, um, that is what's going to, that those positive things or negative things are, are going to be crucial for how long, I believe, it takes a person to recover from that, from a setback. So it's very important to have something that's really strong and solid. And for me, uh, in my life, what I had was, was my faith, my faith in Christ. And that was what I held on to. Because I could, I could go back to a verse that says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Mm-hmm. you know, and I can say, you, you're more than a conqueror through Christ uh, who, who, who loves us. So that, that was my anchor. That could really hold me to know that this thing that happened to me has happened for a reason. You just need to be able to, to hold on and walk through this path and see where God has taken you. And that was, that was the first thing. The second thing was, you know, when I was on, the, on that track, um, and I was, my leg was looking all mangled, and, and I knew I was not <laughs> going to be running too, too, uh, any, any longer. Uh, it was just a, a horrific-looking accident. So the second thing I thought about was, was my wife. And I said, get my, my family here. And, and through the pain and everything, I said, I was able to articulate my telephone number to the, the paramedics and, my, and the Army staff that was there during this training accident that I had. Um, and I was able to you know, just, just get my wife. So the first thing was faith. The second thing was family. And the third thing was the friendships. The Army, uh, all Army track and field team, they were around me. And, you know, they knew of, uh, of my faith because I was sharing it, you know, through Bible studies to whomever would want to come. Want to come, want to come. And it was not like a, a total proselytizing. This was just like everyday life. This is how we just need to, to, to walk. And, and so um, because of that, the, the faith was being revealed during this time of testing, mm-hmm. and a lot of people knew that about me. So they, by the time the ambulance got there, we were singing songs, singing hymns. You know, I, was, I think I was singing the loudest because I was in so much, <laughs> so much pain. Uh, but those three things really were the were the anchors. That, that is so inspiring, John. And you know, and it, it makes me think about, particularly as we approach the Olympic Games, as we're as we are now. Um, you know, a lot of these stories, a lot of inspiring stories come out of the, the backgrounds of, of the athletes uh, participating. And, you know, the, the, one of the things that, that we talked about when you were in D.C. recently was the, the you know, the Paralympic Games. Uh, and I know particularly the Summer Games are the second largest sporting event in the world next to the Olympics. And they've been around since, I think, 1960. And the first, uh, there was a wheelchair race in 1948 as part of the opening ceremony of, of those games, but all of these inspiring stories and, you know, and, 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 and the media attention that surrounds a Paralympic game pale in comparison to, to what's told during the Olympics. Why is this? Well, you know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it depends on what perspective we're, we're looking at that from. Uh, and what I mean by that is I, I think in the United States it's not as well known uh, because it's just, it's just um, it's, it's a nuance. We just don't know it. We're not used to seeing per- people with disabilities on television. And we, we, we in, in this country, we, we, uh, it, it's privatized. We, we sell uh, those television rights, right? So that the Super Bowl, uh, if you want to get on television because the market is so great, you've got to pay, I think it's, what, $2 million bucks for an ad now for a 30-second spot. So that is, that is tremendous value. When you're not known in this country, uh, you have to be able to, um, to, 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 to educate people First, and then you know the, the television will come. Uh, so what we have done at U.S. Paralympics, you know, under, under Charlie Hubner, the, the, our leadership chief of U.S. Paralympics, is we're branding U.S. Paralympics all across the United States, working with partner agencies in conjunction with those that are doing great programs 
for kids and youth and young adults with, with physical disabilities and visual impairments. Those kids are playing those sports and having the experiences of, um, of, their, of redefining their, their self-worth, their self-value, their, their, their understanding, you know, the, um, how sports plays a huge impact as a platform to launch them in other areas. So they go on to college. They're, they're earning sports scholarships. Uh, and that confidence is building them up to, you know, becoming doctors and, uh, and PhDs and, and master's degree holders and then going out into, and working a, a job. And so that's, that's one thing. But I think, you know, when we talk about going back to the question of, of the, the Paralympics on, on, on television, we do have some things. I think through NBC Universal, uh, there's a, a web stream that comes out that, that's a feed, and I think there's going to be some more things that come out. So slowly and slowly, as we become more relevant in this country, we will see more and more athletes on television uh, with, with physical disabilities doing just what they do, uh, not, be, not celebrating because they have a disability, but celebrating because they're a great athlete first and foremost. And I think when you look around the world, uh, you see governments put on those, those television shows for, for them. So they buy the rights to the International Paralympic Committee's broadcast, and they just say, okay, this is a value in our country, and along with the Olympic Games, we're just going to show it on the Paralympic Games so that their government actually buys that. Our government does not do that uh, for either the Olympics or the Paralympics. We don't take any government funding from the, uh, the Olympic Committee. Um, so that's the, that's the, I think that's the biggest thing, the biggest, biggest hurdle uh, when, it, when it comes to awareness and getting, getting on television here. You know, really, and you have to really think about it, if you don't know about it, will you actually watch it? I mean, there's a very closed audience, I think, right now of who actually will watch the Paralympic Games. Um, that, from my standpoint, from, you know, I'm interested because I'm an athlete with inside of it. But if I really don't know what it is, I, really, I, I don't know if I'm going to choose that programming over some, some, something else if I don't know exactly uh, what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the, the reasons why, um, but I think we're moving, I know we're moving in a direction where there will be a lot more play for Paralympic Games on down the road. Hey, John, in our closing minute here, uh, we're just on the verge of London. How much more has to be done to get ready for the Paralympic Games? I think for the U.S. team, you know, we are going through our trials right now. So all the teams are qualifying, and we are picking our team slowly and surely, just as the Olympics are right now, to put the best team forward. That is our mission, is to support our Olympic and Paralympic uh, team members or athletes to, to achieve sustained competitive excellence, inspire all Americans, and to promote the, uh, the Olympic, Olympic and Paralympic ideals. So as we move towards that, we are uh, then trying to use that platform as Paralympics uh, to, to really showcase uh, these athletes. So we're, we'll be out at Mount Sac Relays as, as they, were, they are running out there. We have a, 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 a below-knee amputee class that's running out there. We have an above-knee amputee class running at Ka- uh, Kansas Relays. Uh, so that's some track and field stuff that's happening. We have a swim meet that's going on right now, and swim championships will happen up in Montana, I believe, this year. So a lot of things are going on. Shooting's happening, and people are getting ready. They're getting qualified uh, to make this team and make this incredible journey overseas to, to go back really to the first place of Paralympics, which was in Stoke Mandeville, England. John Register, Associate Director of the U.S. Olympic Committee in the Paralympic Division and silver medalist as a long jump in the 2000 Paralympic Games with a wonderful motivational story of hurtling adversity. We thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. Hey, thank you so much. J.F. Register is my Twitter account. Come follow me. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want more of World Footprints, including our World Footprints travel report of the latest breaking daily travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and now Pinterest. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again really soon. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps. There are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.